Good morning. I've said that already, but I'm saying it again um, because it's written here right in front of me. I missed being with all of you at the retreat last weekend. Um, my work schedule at the University of Michigan uh, meant that instead of being with you all, I spent the weekend at an innovation challenge focused on debt collection. I learned a bunch about how debt is incurred and then bought and sold and how it can create a fantastically confusing set of demands on people already struggling to make ends meet. The group working on these questions and thinking about answers was a group with a diverse skill set from law to policy to storytelling to coding and it made for a very interesting weekend. It's mostly a story for another time but there was one detail that stuck out to me right from the beginning of the conference. State Senator Jeff Irwin opened the session and read from a 150-year-old law that still governs much about how debt is considered in Michigan. He noted that the law prohibited debt collectors from impoverishing their clients and described a minimum limit below which they could not collect. It included a number of sheep, goats, pigs, and oxen. Irwin's purpose in introducing this into the conversation was to talk about how antiquated and in need of updating the law is. And that's true. But the lesson that stood out to me was that 150 years ago, you couldn't describe a person's financial well-being without describing the animals that they were in relationship with. And when you talk about animals to describe your well-being, you need to think about much more of the world and creation. This was a statement about a person's financial well-being, but it shows a world where morality, wisdom, health, and tradition have much more to do with each other than they seem to in our world. For my contribution to our environmental theme this morning, I want to explore this idea of a holistic worldview in a few different directions. One of the earliest statements of a holistic land ethic post-industrialization was that of Aldo Leopold, who described a land ethic. One of Leopold's own statements of this goes like this. A thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. It is wrong when it tends otherwise. I really like this statement that combines ethics and beauty and ecology into one vision of how the world should be. The Aldo Leopold website puts it this way, a land ethic expands the definition of community to include not only humans, but all of the other parts of the earth as well. Soils, waters, plants and animals, the land. In a land ethic, the relationships between people and land are intertwined. Care for people cannot be separated from care for the land. The same kind of thing happens in the scripture that Maggie read for us today from the book of Sirach, which was written about 150 years before Jesus' time. This book, also known as Ecclesiasticus, is a deuterocanonical book, which means it's not part of the canon of the Bible for many Christians. It's also not included in the Hebrew Bible. But it is one of the longest surviving books of wisdom from the ancient world and contains this wisdom. 
The passage we read today has a creation story which connects God's creative power, creation's diversity, and eternal wisdom. In response to creation's beauty and innumerable blessings, humans are expected to praise God, to follow God's ways, to give charity, confess our sin, and hate injustice. There is no separation between salvation and redemption and creation and morality in this passage. They're all the same thing. This shows that we are expected to act well in relationship to our environment, but also to learn from our environment, to tell the splendor of everything that God does. Our children's story from today shows us that that isn't necessarily a simple task, but more on that in just a bit. The book Undrowned by Alexis Pauline Gums is a book that I have talked to you about before and takes a similar approach, connecting wisdom and discovery along with learning from nature and reflecting on the truth of the past on tradition. The first three examples that I've offered you this morning, the Michigan debt law, the land ethic, and the creation story from Sirach, all look to humans and how humans fit into creation. These examples are focused on the animals that we relate closely to and the land that we inhabit. Gums takes a different approach, looking at those animals that we don't easily relate to, animals that live in the ocean. <coughs> I gave a version of this talk at the Society of Christian Ethics in January, and I was joined that evening by Adrian Crone, a Jewish scholar who also reflected on gums but, and Jewish ethics and traditions. Crone was particularly impressed by Gum's attention to marine mammals because they are not a part of Jewish reflection. And she thinks that Jewish thinkers need new focus for their reflections in these days. Looking at things that we haven't thought about before gives us an opportunity to think thoughts we haven't thought before. So I want to start my reflection on Gum's with two quotes about things that she wants to learn from marine mammals. Did you hear about the rainbow-breathing whale that straight up swallowed a white South African diver? Marine mammals live with graceful ferocity, navigating treacherous circumstances daily. What can we learn from the orca, for example, about the sad farce of human dominion or from dolphins that demand fish from the humans who impinge on their food supply. Or from the leopard seal who is so fierce, I dare compare her to the incisive Toni Morrison, not a comparison I would ever make lightly. What is our bravest breathing? What is our unapologetic action towards self-determination? What does it actually mean to love someone whose love leads generations? Ecosystems shape themselves around her. Great and small dream her at night. What does it mean to love someone who has seen her children taken and, at the risk of capture, stayed to witness and to scream? Who will carry around the corpse of her child until her grief has reached another stage? Who will not pretend that her heart is not broken when it is? Do we know how to love a love that huge and unapologetic? 
Could we learn that? Undrowned was written initially as a series of very popular Instagram posts, as Gum sat on the North Carolina coast learning how to breathe. She says of her book, I see this book as an offering to you and as an artifact of a process that I am in the midst of called marine mammal apprenticeship. If there was ever a time to humbly submit to the mentorship of marine mammals, it is now. Did I mention the ocean is rising? Have you noticed the adaptation in our breathing? This is a pragmatic course of study. At the same time, part of what is at stake for me in this apprenticeship is a transformed relationship to my own breathing, the salt water within me, the depth of my grief, the leagues of my love. And I identify as a mammal. I identify as a black woman ascending with and shaped by a whole group of people who are transubstantiated into property and kidnapped across an ocean. The reflection on marine mammals is for gums about those mammals who need to surface to breathe, about reflection on their own form of life in whatever richness is available to her, but also about the middle passage, about slavery, mass incarceration, about her life and relations. Again, my task here as a marine mammal apprentice is to open myself to guidance from these advanced marine mammals and to identify with them. To see what happens when I rethink and refeel my own relations, possibilities, and practices, inspired by the relations, possibilities, and practices of advanced marine mammal life. So as we learned in the children's story, over the last few years, many humans started identifying with a group of orcas off the coast of Spain. These whales sunk a series of boats by destroying their rudders. They became an internet sensation when they were seen as nature rebelling against the excess of capitalism, smashing, dismantling, taming, and escaping the yachts of billionaires. Scientists have proposed a variety of explanations for what's happening when they do this. One proposes that White Gladys, the leader of these whales, experienced a traumatic event related to a boat rudder and has now taught a group of younger whales to work with her to destroy rudders. Others think that the whales find amusement and entertainment, even physical pleasure in attacking their rudders. And that when they bore of this fascination, this behavior will cease. Orcas can have a fascination like this that persists for a few years and then dissipates. And as highly intelligent social learners, the fascination can spread. This is much like us in many ways. Non-human culture was first identified in, in cetaceans, in whales, as humans understood that whale song passed down from generation to generation with regional cultural variation. So there's an identifiable set of songs that a whale species will sing across the world, but it will differ in different regions. It's interesting that humans identified culture here linguistically, and we continue to pursue the linguistic aspects of whale culture. Words are first for many of the things that we do, often ahead of our bodies. 
New projects are seeking to utilize artificial intelligence la large language models to understand sperm whale language off the coast of Dominica. But White Gladys's material culture of, ru of rudder destruction is also a culture. As Gunn says, what does it mean to actually love someone whose love leads generations? Whatever the cultural strategy behind these sunken yachts is from White Gladys's perspective, I do think it is useful for humans to identify with creatures that are critical of excess wealth. I think it is useful for us in an era of climate change to think that nature is rising up against us. An orca rebellion is something that I can definitely get behind. And part of this, for me, is because I'm Mennonite. So I always need somebody else to enact violence on my behalf. <laughs> this question of how necessary destruction is possible inside a pacifist worldview has vexed us for most of the last hundred years. Those of us Mennonites and Church of the Brethren living in North America have at points moved to avoid wars a couple of times, but in the main, we have accommodated ourselves to a life protected by the police or violence workers, a term that resonates for me as someone unwilling to utilize violence. And again this year, with wars raging in Ukraine and Gaza, with military action in the Middle East spreading, I wonder about my pacifism. I wonder if there's something I am supposed to be learning from killer whales. I wonder, but I also know that my tradition's emphatic no to the sword is on the level of human interaction much more useful than any violent strategy. Every ceasefire is better than the war that it ceases. I have shared with you before about how thinking about this book, Undrowned, and other books that are in the same vein of thinking um, called Emergent Strategy um, have been really important to me over the last couple of years in terms of thinking about new ways forward, new ways to imagine community. And I've made a lot of connections between that kind of thinking inside black feminism and our own Anabaptist traditions. I am not saying that our Anabaptist traditions presaged these black feminist insights, but rather that there are simply similarities between the two that are interesting. And one of the places where that has really kind of engaged for me with Gum's book about marine mammals in particular is that I've had my own project of trying to learn from animals by writing songs about them. And so I'm gonna finish this sermon by playing a song for you that I wrote 15 years ago about whales. Learning from whales was an excited and awesome thing for me then. And I'm picking up on the awful fear that is always contained in the word awesome, but not always brought to the fore. I'm fantastically afraid of whales, to the point of probably having a phobia. I cannot fathom their size, and so I'm continually freaked out by them. I went to the... Um, Shed Aquarium when I was in Chicago for the ethics conference um, with a bunch of ethicists, which was an interesting uh, experience. 
mostly of just negotiating tons and tons of people. Um, the aquarium has become much more busy than it did when I visited it um, 20 years ago when I lived in Chicago. But I had that experience again the first time I encountered the beluga whales, the cutest thing you could ever look at, of just being entirely freaked out that there could be something this big um, moving around in the, in the water. But I am drawn again and again to the language and culture of whales. And I made a connection 15 years ago when I wrote this song about, uh, to the Catholic theologian Karl Rahner, who has this idea of a supernatural existential. This is the idea that every human has a bit of God inside of them that they can identify with. That when we look for God, we look to nature, we look to teaching, but we can also look inside ourselves where God has um, implanted this kind of supernatural existential. Here again, there is a connection between God and the natural world, a holistic approach to living in the world which we can learn from. There's a lyric in the song that I wrote, which um, you have the words um, on the back of the bulletin too, so you'll be able to follow along since I won't enunciate when I sing. And it says, um, seized by song. And this is a passing reference to my epilepsy, something that I have been very fortunate to be able to live with without too much adjustment and which now doesn't really affect me at all. This is another advantage of a holistic approach that it encourages us to simply continue to add new things to it. So we can, thinking about, we can be thinking about creation, and we can be thinking about war, we can be thinking about kind of our consumerist lives, um, but we can add thinking about our kind of neurological health to that. Um, a holistic worldview expands in this way and allows us to move forward. So I'm gonna stop talking now without really ending, but I hope to have pointed towards your reflection um, both, I have to have pointed you to reflect both outside yourselves to the world around you, which it's easy to do in this space, but also to your inmost thoughts and reflections, to the ways that these things are drawn together in the splendor of God's work, both in the big grandeur sense, like whales or these trees, but also in each moment and each creature that we interact with.
Supernatural 